0: Yes, a goal is helpful for direction, but it is not a be-all or end-all game plan. Things can shift. Many things are not in one's control. The way that one reacts to them
1: is, like that is the thing that we can always control, which, which is a lot. Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I wanna welcome this week's guest, Jordan Salcido to our show today. Jordan is an award-winning sommelier and founder of Ramona, a delicious organic wine spritzer made with high quality ingredients. Jordan began her career in New York as a hostess just to make ends meet in the beginning and then realized her passion for cooking and wine. She started from being a prep cook to manager to becoming a sommelier and eventually the wine and beverage director at David Chang's Momofuku Restaurants. She is also a five-time James Beard Award semifinalist and was named the most creative in the world by the World of Fine Wine magazine. The idea for Ramona came to life when Jordan actually became unexpectedly pregnant with her first son. And it was at this point she realized she wanted to take control of her own life. She always had dreams of creating an organic wine that everyone could enjoy at a good price point. Her wine spritzers have been spotted in the hands of many celebrities like Kanye West, Alicia Keys, and P. Diddy, and are loved by critics and consumers because of their beautifully packaged design and commitment to high quality organic ingredients. Ramona is distributed nationwide at Whole Foods along with independent retail chains and restaurants across the U.S. We'll talk to Jordan about how she pivoted her career from wanting to be a writer to then wine expert, why she walked away from certain business ventures to follow her own instincts and taking advantage of so many opportunities when the odds are against you. Welcome to the show, Jordan. It is an
0: honor to be here. Thank you so
1: much for having me on the show. And I'm excited to have you on. I think it's super fascinating to see your journey from wanting to become a writer to eventually getting really deep into the world of food and wine, two things that I personally love. So I'm excited to jump into it. On the podcast, we always love to start from the beginning. I know you grew up in Denver, Colorado, and you talk about how your parents really gave you and your siblings a really strong value system and work ethic, and they seem pretty incredible because they really pushed you to think outside the box and really go after your dreams. So I'd love to hear more about your parents and what your upbringing was like.
0: Of course. Also, I just want to say thank you for all of your, of of all the podcasts that I have had the pleasure and opportunity to be part of. I am just so blown away by your preparation and by your thoughtfulness. And I just wanted to share that on uh, here so that everyone else knows that as well. I'm sure they already do, but um, yes. So, (laughs) of course. Um, So yes, grew up in, in Denver and my parents were always, I think it's so my, my dad grew up in Waterbury, Connecticut, which I don't know if you've driven by there lately, but it is a sad place to be. It's like the these beautiful houses that are boarded up and he really doesn't ever go back and nor have any sort of sentimental, emotional attachment to it. Um, but I think one thing that was very instilled in him in a very young age, which was also a value system that was sort of instilled in my mom as well was was education and work ethic. Mm -hmm. Um, Those were the two things that were the most important to my grandmother, who was raising five kids basically by herself. So my father was the youngest, um, along with his twin sister, and then his um, father passed away when he was 13. So his mom said, I'm, "All of my kids are going to college, and they're all going to uh, get an education." And and they did. And that was just something that was so fundamental to her dreams for her children. And I think that was something that just became very internalized. Um, my mom. Actually, so her brother ended up going to Dartmouth. She was, she grew up in Great Bend, Kansas, and uh, both of her parents have passed. But her, I never really knew my maternal grandmother, but my maternal grandfather was like uh, very traditional minded, certainly did not think that a woman needed an education, and finally agreed to let my mom go to community college. She fought him on that and went to, um, Kansas University, but she just didn't really have the opportunity to get the education she wanted until she left home um, and then ended up with a couple of master's degrees. So I think education and just sort of the grit required to plow through and follow a dream was something that was just part of the DNA of my parents and something that they tried to instill in us for better or worse. I think there's, there's, there's good and there's, there's bad that comes with that, um, but that I think has been helpful um, for me in terms, of, in terms of sort of, okay, setting a goal and then working really hard towards it without any expectation that, uh, that anything will happen without that hard work.
1: I actually love what you just said. So working really hard without any expectation, because I think so much of us want to plan certain things. And it's like, once I hit this success metric, this will happen. And your story, which is why I wanted you on the podcast, just shows how hard work has taken you into so many different steps in your life, which I'm sure you wouldn't even have imagined early on in your career. So I love that about your story and talking more about just how education was so important to your family and it's something you grew up in you studied English literature and minored in philosophy. And I think this is interesting because you always dreamed about becoming a writer after school, but you moved to New York still with that intention. But that's when you had your first little stint in the restaurant business, which changed the whole trajectory of your life. So I'd love for you to take us through that time and just the mindset of what you were thinking when you moved to New York straight from college. Yes. Okay.
0: So I think I think this is one thing I was just so mentally unprepared for what living in New York actually means. And I think once I got to New York, I realized what a totally privileged position I had been in up until that point. And my parents uh, very much let me sort of figure out how I was going to pay for wherever it was that I lived and that I was on my own. And that was such a, it was a stark contrast to the coddled, Environment. Even though I thought that I was very independent because, of course, I moved. I, I grew up in Denver. I went uh, east for college and I lived in Italy ab- abroad for a semester and thought that that was a dose of the real world. But in reality, it's very different from from sort of being uh released into the world of, of work and the messaging, I think, that colleges do, which is really helpful. I'm sure there's a psychological reason why we all get told like the world is your oyster and you can do anything because you can. But the other message that at least I had not heard if it was being communicated was like, yeah, but you're going to start at the bottom, at the very bottom. And you're going to work your way up. Uh, and none of the things that you look at as an award or an accolade, all of that, you know, yes, take that with you and use that to sort of give you a spur of confidence in moments where that's needed. But, but don't expect that that means that you are more entitled to anything else you are starting at the bottom, just along with, with everyone else in the workforce. And that was really hard I think for me in New York, I moved there without any game plan. I moved there with a dream. I thought, okay, I'm good at writing. i won these writing awards. That's what I want to do. And I also, I think once I got to New York and realized that we're as humans, very uh, adaptable, I think. And so sort of like, all right, what do I have to do here? Okay, all right, all right. This job, This I entered during a recession, the recession of 2002 three 2002 yeah 2002 which will date me but um, but in short I sort of ended up with this job in the garment district with the which was like a beauty startup and it was very unfulfilling no no sense of culture no sense of purpose but it was a paycheck which I needed and then um, and then restaurant job at night and it was sort of this first restaurant job that led to my my second restaurant job which was WD50 and that, was a stark contrast to the rest of my life in New York to that point. And here was the chef, Wiley Dufresne, who had a liberal arts degree as I did, who was such a creative, inclusive thinker and who understood and and advocated for the process of, of learning. So before he opened this, this wildly revolutionary restaurant, WD50. He was a sous chef at Jean-Georges von Richten's uh, restaurants for 10 years. And so he had a really strong foundation in what, in how to cook and how cuisine was built and the sort of rules of, of, of the culinary rules and then was very well positioned to sort of add his own thumbprint into his, yeah, or add his own philosophy into this, into the conversation through this restaurant. And that was so eye-opening and so exciting and all these wonderful people would walk through the doors and it was sort of like the place to be for restaurants and for the restaurant world. So every great chef came through and every great sommelier came through and all the press was coming in and every night there was something exciting and I realized I was part of something uh, that felt very magical, not only to me, but to everyone else in this world and that was i think what was so gripping for me was okay wait a minute i was sort of clinging to this path of writing because that was what i knew and that was comfortable and it was i am i'm someone who sort of likes to have a goal to work towards and then now i think one thing that i've learned is yes a goal is helpful for direction but it is not a be-all or end-all game plan things can shift many things are not in one's control the way that one reacts to them is. Like that is the thing that we can always control, which, which is a lot. And so I think one thing I try to do and have learned to do certainly better than in those days is, is pivot my, pivot goal setting or be open to new possibilities. Um, and that I think was what happened with WD50 where it was such an exciting place to be. And I realized what is it that I have to offer the writing community At this moment, why not sort of follow this this path and this passion, a little while longer.
1: What I love so much about this time period in your life is you might not have loved that first job or second Mm -hmm. job that you had, but you really kept an open mind to the opportunities around you. And I think that's really important for anyone who's wanting to figure out what their passion is or get a job that they truly love. I think it's all about exposure, whether that's listening to podcasts, having different jobs, which I've definitely done in my career. So it's really fascinating to see where your life has turned from just taking that first hostess job that you had at WD-50. So you're in the city, you're in the buzz of one of the top restaurants, and you decided to actually move back home to go to culinary school. I'd love to hear more about that journey, because that's really when you decided to go deep into the restaurant world. Yes, and that was a decision that came through a few conversations with
0: myself and actually with my mother, who was just always a very good sounding board and sort of pushed me to think in ways that maybe I might not have been comfortable thinking through a scenario entirely. She is always the person who who says, you know, you might want to consider X or Y or Z. And so when I came back, basically my my year in New York ended with my lease ending. And then I had to do some self-reflection and say, is, is the direction that I'm going, Uh, does this put me on the right path? This has given, this has opened my eyes, but if I really want to be part of this world in this city, am I set up to add value? Because I think that's another thing that is really useful in New York. this was a a quote given to me early on by a mentor was New York, what you get in into what you get in or what you put in is what you get out when it comes to the restaurant industry in New York. And I felt like I wasn't yet well equipped to put in or to add enough value. So um, and and I also just enjoy the process of learning. And so I I decided to move back to Colorado, enrolled in Johnson Wales Culinary School. And that uh, with the purpose in my mind, I was still focused on writing. I still thought, okay, if I'm really gonna write, I wanna focus my I wanna sort of hone my focus. I love this space. It was before blogs had really existed. So this was sort of pre-blog and what the the pinnacle of of the writing world was the New York Times, the food section of the New York Times. And so I decided that's what I wanted to do was write for the New York Times. And I reached out, I sent a writing sample to the then editor of the New York Times. Uh, Was she the editor? She was the editor and she was also doing the restaurant reviews. And she wrote me back, which was like, crazy to me. And then we she ended up inviting me to breakfast. And so we I I said, look, hey, we're this is my goal, but I'm in culinary school and maybe I could take you to coffee someday. And and she wrote back. So that was um still very much the focus of my my vision was I'm going to go to culinary school so that I have an understanding and a foundation in in culinary and can have informed opinions um, and can and can be one of the best or the best of of this space that I'm that I'm looking to be part of. There's also a direction my dad always said is it doesn't matter what you do, just be great. Whatever it is, be great. And I think it's an easy thing to say. I think maybe a better thing the way I think about it is, is strive for greatness. No matter what it is that you like strive to be Strive to be great because life life gets in the way. There are pandemics, there are snowstorms, there are things that happen. But but the value system that you bring when you show up is something that we can we can all strive for every day. So um, I try to I try to bring that with me. Um, but back to culinary school. Uh, you have to, in order to graduate, cook somewhere for six months. And so uh, that was when I knew that that was my opportunity to get back to New York and had reached out to a few contacts from my time in the city. And that led to a series of interviews, one of which was at Danielle. And I knew right away that that was where I wanted to work and what I wanted to be part of. And it was this microcosm of New York City in a way where like there's the chef from ireland whose nickname was irish and there was this uh, the chef or the sous chef from spain whose nickname was spaniard and and you had just people from different countries in this kitchen uh all of the time there was lupe the head butcher there was there was just so many different perspectives and it was chaotic but it was intense and the pursuit of excellence was present and it was fun it was fun and it was Um, really a magical time, I would say, in my career, especially because I didn't ever think I was doing it to be a chef. I wanted to do as great of a job as I could and learn, but add value at the same time. And then my thought was, and then I'll pivot to writing, but I kept that to myself.
1: Exactly. So it's fascinating. I didn't know how you uh, that working at Danielle was during the externship, but you still had this mentality that you're going to work really hard, understand food, build the confidence. I know it's very much a grind working in these restaurants. You know, I was in banking, but I know this is way yes. more difficult. Same, than- similar,
0: so similar.
1: And it's yes. like hectic and it's very male dominated as well in the kitchen, right? So, Same. how was that experience for you just grinding? Did it feel different being, you know, one of the few women that were in that environment? Yes,
0: for sure. I think what I, the approach that I took, and I think, I don't remember whose quote this is. I want to say it's an Oprah quote. And it was, I had read it. I think it's an Oprah quote of probably 15 years old at this point, but something like, you know, look, the way that I've avoided being cataloged in these isms of sexism or feminism or racism is, is by working really hard. And so that was the mentality that I went in with. And sure, there were, I think it, I think because the expectation of me was that I was a young woman in the kitchen and that I probably wouldn't succeed. I came right after this guy named Joe. And Joe was enormous. He probably, he was very tall. He was probably 6'6". And he was wow. probably 300 pounds. So he was tall and he was big. And a lot of what my job entailed was moving giant lexans and making stock in these gigantic stuff. And so it's it's helpful to be big and strong. And so I think the expectation was that I probably wouldn't do a very good job. But the the thing that is true at Danielle, I, at least this was true in my experience, it actually was a meritocracy hmm. and probably still is. So if you can do the work, then you get the recognition. And I think the ex- I'm always happy to disprove whatever the expectation is. It's almost like a secret advantage in some way, like... Yeah, you don't think I can do this. I I will crush this. I will crush this. And um and now and it was fun in the process because because there were so many new things going on. There were so many new flavors, there were so many, everything was education in real time and the group of people, I mean the people who are drawn to the kitchen in general are really warm can be really warm and they that was my experience in the danielle kitchen and once you sort of showed that you were up to the task then then
1: res- respect was given that's that's beautiful and very similar to my own story right it's just like putting your head down working hard and proving people wrong there's yes. something nice about that <laughs> so yes. it's uh Great to see just how your trajectory was similar. So you're in the kitchen, really learning about food, being in the weeds, and what really happened which allowed you to get more exposure to the wine business as a whole? Because that's really where the rest of your career takes you, You know, even away from the writing that you thought you were gonna still get into. Yes, totally. All right, so I think a couple of
0: things. One, um, and they all happen simultaneously, so it wasn't sort of one thing and then another. Even in culinary school, I had loved the wine classes, and then i would actually forgotten this. But my my grandfather on my dad's side, the one memory that my dad shares of his own father was making wine in their basement in Waterbury, Connecticut. It was like a thing that all the Italian Americans family Italian American families did, and that was that was part of my dad's. That's really the only piece of my grandfather that I that I know about um with any sort of emotional context and so that was part of it and i think probably what drew me to wine or Kept me engaged and connected. But then, all these fascinating people that I kept meeting, most notably the man who is now my husband of 13 years, um, he ran a wine program. And I had met him back at WD50, and he ran a wine program with this very extensive burgundy list. And the more I dove into burgundy, the more I was falling in love with it. The wines were so transportive and magical to begin with. But then, really, once I i started getting to know some of the people behind the wines that is when everything started to click and danielle had an incredible burgundy program danielle is one of the the few chefs who truly loves wine and wine culture is very important to him and he could see that i i think i would carry wine books around with me and he he noticed that i uh in fact our first conversation was not, a, it, it ended up being about wine, but I had gone to this uh, cookbook shop called Bonnie Slotnick Cookbooks on one of my days off. And I bought this book called Great French Chefs. And I was going in after work, it was like maybe 11 p.m. And I would always go in before I'd walk home. I lived on the Upper East Side at the time. And um, all the pastry chefs would leave out whatever didn't get used in the desserts. And there was this one apple lasagna and it's basically like, apples that melt all together. It's the most glorious thing. And I was going to get a bite of one before I was going to walk home. Danielle walks in from the lounge with a bottle of jaboulet La Chapelle. And he sees that I'm carrying this book. And he says, who are you? And what, why do you have this book? And let me see it. Because he's so curious. And that was the other thing I loved about Danielle was curiosity was valued. And there was a premium placed on curiosity, which then made everyone want to show curiosity and, and practice it. And so he because it's just who he is. And so he says, what's this book? Who are you? Tell me your name. I'm Danielle. And I said, I'm Jordan. I'm I'm your bass rapper. I was the, the rapper of the black bass pop at the time. And he opens this book and, and he, he flips through and he finds this page of red mullet with potato scales by Paul Bucuse which happened to be the dish that he prepared before he opened Danielle in the first location that then inspired the black bass popiette that I was then wrapping. So it was sort of this lineage of, of the way the dish evolved. And then he asked if I like wine and I say, yes, I do. And so we have a glass as I'm sort of telling him this and he's telling me about his vision for creating this dish as well. And then ever since then, we had this connection he just would look at he knew that I liked wine and so if there was a wine dinner like for example I, I know Anthony Bourdain wrote about this in one of his books but there was this game dinner a fall game dinner where every great chef in America is in the private room and none of us as like the junior stagiaires knew this was happening until around 11 30 and then uh, the chef de cuisine Jean-Francois Bruel said hey does anyone want to stay late there's a dinner in the private room you know do you want to help out and and a few of us said yes and then it was this dinner and our job was to help prep the Ortolan course which is this illegal bird and you must eat it under a napkin so that God does not see you eating this it gets poached in Armagnac. anyway so I would get pulled into events like that and then the, the final one that was sort of the moment was um, an event called the La Palais de Neige in Aspen, and Danielle said, "Look, uh, if you want to work this event, you can." And in in short, it was five of the great Burgundian winemakers in Aspen. Danielle, his uh, chef de cuisine um, of DB Bistro, and I were the ones who uh, were able to cook this meal, and I got to just try these wines and meet these winemakers, and just fell in love with Burgundy, a place I had never been. And Danielle is the one who said, "You should." It's clear you love wine you can always have a job in the kitchen but it's very clear that wine is your passion you should uh work harvest that should be your next thing that you do and you should just you know tomorrow there will be dinner and that you will be near me and you should just go and ask a few of these people see who will let you work harvest this year because that's that's the right next step and i and that was it that was sort of for me it just felt exactly right and it and then that was that was the path from then on
1: incredible wow so much happened for you to even get to that point point. and you mentioned you were dating your then boyfriend at the time now husband and I believe you ended up getting a job to go to Burgundy and harvest yes how long were you there what was the experience and was it tough to be away from this new relationship that you were you know building back in New York actually
0: my my boyfriend at the time now my husband ended up coming with me oh he great even better me. He had never been to Harvest, but he was really like the foremost Burgundian expert. And I think when like his new girlfriend comes along and lines up Harvest and he's like, I'm coming. And I was like, no, this is my thing. You already know about Burgundy. You're very well established. This is like, I'm. this is my journey. And then the next day he, he sent me a link. He's like, I bought our tickets. I can't wait to go. <laughs> and at the time I was like, I was a little frustrated because I thought this is, this is a thing where... I, for me, I felt like it was important for my identity. In retrospect, it was a beautiful experience we shared together and we had very different experiences. So I had lined up this very, sort, basically, yes, a, a job for three weeks and that entailed being in the vineyard every day and picking the grapes and it's quite backbreaking really is like by the by day one you're sort of like oh I'm a little sore and then by day 10 I really didn't know if my back would ever return to normal I just remember like hunching over in like the bathtub shower and being like I hope I can stand up straight again when this is all over but it was it was another thing where it was like you can come to harvest but it's hard work I don't know if you can do it and It's like I will do this I will do this hard work so uh, Robert and I, Robert's my husband, he and I got to harvest together a couple of days and then he he went off and he would actually start to sort of visit other winemaker friends and see their processes, whereas I was really focused on, on this one winery. And then we would come back and we'll have dinner together um, at the Demand, which was called Domaine de L'Arlo. And it was magical for so many reasons, but I would say that the biggest one was that it was just this opportunity to have these conversations that never end up in books. And so it was sort of like the history, like the real history of Burgundy, <laughs> like the the, the things that, that will not make it into a book, but you realize like how this relationship happened or why this person has this plot of land that is so coveted or you know all these sort of little stories. And, and that the magic just sort of started to unfold in an even more meaningful way as I was also able to see the process in real time and understand how decisions impacted the final product and the final wine. And then we would blind taste at night and compare sort of this wine maker's process to this one and and really start to unpack the why behind each bottle.
1: Sure. And what an incredible experience to be so immersed in, you know, the culture and just the wine industry. And was that experience what really pushed you to want to take the sommelier exam? Because you talked, you've mentioned a few times in the interview that you've worked so hard to kind of build your own identity, right? You wanted to work at the top restaurants. You wanted to go to Burgundy. A lot of it was building your own confidence and identity. So was that the main driver for you to go get your sommelier exam? Because that is hard. <laughs> it was a big, I would say it was a big factor there, There, especially
0: in New York. And I think I can't speak as well to other, other cities, but um, in New York, there's sort of this, the beauty is that it's such an important wine market and has been for so long that there's a lot of access to great wine. And there are also, or there were pre-pandemic, so many extraordinary restaurants and opportunities for building a wine program or learning from a great mentor that may or may not have gone through that training. I started to see, and really, I guess my decision to really focus on this exam started when I took the job at 11 Madison Park with uh, John Reagan, who was the wine director at the time and just so focused. And he was maniacal about guest experience and about education and learning. And he is not an easy person to work for. I, I think everyone who has ever worked for him would probably say that. I think he would probably say that. But you just, he forces you to learn in this way that is just relentless and really valuable. It's hard in the moment, but it's so valuable and I'm so grateful for it on the other side. Um, and yeah, and he was a—he was going through his uh, Court of Master's Mollier exam at the time and it was something that he valued and placed value on. And I think now a lot of controversy surrounding that, that body of that organization has, has emerged for very good reasons. But for me, I think I wanted, I knew that I had access to the, the group of incredibly brilliant wine professionals who placed no value in this exam. But I also liked, and I think as a woman, I think it, for me, my own perception was that it's. I didn't really see any examples of women in wine who were taken seriously, who didn't have some kind of accreditation. What is the word I'm looking for? Credential. That's the word I'm looking for. Credential, yeah. And so I, I think I, I wanted it because I wanted that journey. I, I respected the process. I, in turn, met a lot of amazing other people whom I would not have met otherwise, um, but I wanted to prove that to myself as well.
1: Sure, and you know I I forgot what the, what the documentary was called on Netflix Sommelier, where they go through and th- yes. the, the entire process. I was shocked on how intense and how grueling it is, and I was looking at some numbers. I think there's only 172 some master sommeliers in America, and only 28 of them are women. So going back to your point of there not being a lot of leading women in the wine industry, I mean that's shocking. Yes. So you put yourself in this process, and someone with your experience and your love, I would. Think think, you know, would fly through with flying colors and you did pass two of the aspects of the exam and you didn't pass, I believe the service part of the exam. So I'd love to hear your perspective and how you were feeling at the time, because so much of your blood, sweat and tears went into this entire process. It's not like a one month ordeal. It's a life ordeal.
0: (laughs) Well, and the thing that was so like, that sort of gave me pause was the year that I passed theory and had already passed the blind tasting, but did not pass service, was the year we opened Co. We were nominated by the James Beard Foundation for outstanding service. And Bobby Stuggy was a dear friend and a mentor and an admiration of many years, he sort of is the unofficial head of service at the court. And he came to Co. prior to the exam and he had the tasting menu and he said, this is the apex. This is the pinnacle of wine service in America right now. I'm going back and I'm telling everyone what you're doing. And it was, it was a moment where I was so well-prepared. So when I got to the service exam, I was so well prepared. I had already taken the exam twice. And one year, I just totally did not study Spain hard enough. Another year, I just flubbed on the name of the Barolo bottling. And so I made sure when I got there that year that I had an imaginary tasting menu. If they threw out something like you're in a Tasmanian restaurant. We only drink Tasmanian wines, I would have nailed it. If you tell me Chile, you know, like every scenario I had covered um, And I was so comfortable on the floor because I was on the floor every night at Co. And so it was these three different tables. And I passed two of them. Uh, also, I, I like I nailed every bottling question. Like nothing threw me off, and I did not run out of time. And so, when the exam, the final exam results come in, I knew that if I had passed, it was going to be this wonderful human named Jay Fletcher was going to give me my results. And instead, it was it was a, a different woman who was not Jay. And so, I knew right away that I hadn't passed. And I thought, okay it has to be theory because I nailed service. And and she said, no, actually you, you nailed theory, you crushed it. We just thought that you didn't seem like yourself on the champagne table. And I said, what do you mean? Because this is a group of people who, A, don't work in restaurants and B, have never seen me work in a restaurant. And so it was really hard advice to take seriously because it was sort of like, who are you to give me that kind of weird, bizarre, arbitrary advice with nothing else to it. Really, you're telling me that like at, I know I'm at the pinnacle of my, like I will never be better at service. And I nailed that exam. And it was just, it just felt like the most arbitrary bizarre kind of thing to hear. And I, I, it was a gut punch in the moment. Um, because it was sort of like, this was the year I was going to pass. Uh, or reset. And, and since then, so many scandals have come out against the MS exam from sexual assault and uh, cheating scandals to so many other things. So to the point where some of the highest ranking MSs have actually left the court. Um, But for me in that moment, it was just a moment, and it took a while. I will not say it was immediate, but it, it sort of made me question whether or not i actually wanted the feedback of that like the people at the champagne table who i can like all think of in my mind none of them are people that i would ever aspire to be like or want to emulate or find that they're doing anything that that resonates with me and so it was sort of a moment to say wait a minute do i want their feedback and do i want to sort of pin my hopes on this on this arbitrary goal that they like, I will never get better at seeming like myself to people who don't know me, then it just, there was no way to sort of take that and then take it seriously at the end of the day. And so that was for me, the moment where I realized I was ready to start Ramona because I think I wanted that pin as a change agent. And also sort of a few days later, I found out that I was pregnant with our first son, Henry, who, and that, and that was, that was a very scary moment because Henry is now five and he is the greatest joy in our life, aside from our other son who is equally joyful. Um, but it was, I I also don't think there are, for me, at least there weren't too many examples of women in the wine industry on the restaurant side who, who, had a successful career in restaurants and also were mothers. And the more that I thought about it, um, I just wasn't sure how I would want to mother this new baby. And so I felt like this is the moment. I was looking for change and this is it. Sort of the, the moment of deciding to commit to this idea that had always been
1: this idea that I loved, but didn't have time to really explore Sure. Oh my gosh. There's so much that I want to unpack in this story. So many gems that I'm hearing. So going back a little bit, when you found out that you didn't pass a service exam, you mentioned it felt like a gut punch for anyone listening who is going through, you know, a setback in their career or life. How did you maintain the confidence in yourself that you were still in a good place and you were pushing forward? Because it seems like you handled that setback really well at that point in your life.
0: I think it, the way that I process and I learned this about myself and some people internalize. And for me, I have to talk it out or find examples that resonate. And there was a, a wedding right after this exam. It was like the day, it was actually the day that I was pretty sure I was pregnant. It was like the day after this wedding. And one of the guests at this wedding, this will sound very strange, but there. Beyonce was also a guest at this wedding and she's very warm. I will not say that I'm close friends with Beyonce. I admire her deeply and she's very warm. And so we were at this brunch table together and she knew that I was taking this exam. And I, I had a chance to, she sort of, I think she asked about it and she said, you know, um, how are you feeling? And and I said, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm bummed. I was really expecting this. And she said something so casually. And she said, you know, what? sometimes you think you have a goal, but then you realize you actually don't want that goal. That goal is not as important as the thought you had that it was. So goals can change. Um, but in short, it was basically looking for, like talking it through with people I admired. And another person I admired very deeply is my sister who is brilliant and uh, who rejected law school in favor of getting her PhD in epidemiology, which I didn't even know what that was. And lo and behold, she was, you know, years ahead of everyone else um, in that. And she just said, look, you're telling me that the reason you didn't pass is because a group of people who don't know you don't think you seem like yourself. This is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And so I think it was helpful, sort of like your girlfriend saying like, you don't need that crappy guy in your (laughs) life anyway. So sort of like that, but then realizing that like actually realizing that that was true for me, I think. And that, that did admittedly take time because I was sort of angry and then I was thinking at first i was sad and then it was like problem solving like wait Mm -hmm. maybe i can take this in london maybe i'll take the exam in london maybe that's because this is a silly piece of insight and i knew i didn't want to take the exam while having a baby and so i started to problem solve and then just met several dead ends it's like oh no we at the Court of US think we're much better than the Court of England. So now, even though two years ago, you could take your exam there, now we've decided you can't, sorry. And it was just all these weird roadblocks. And so the more, I guess I started to sort of think it through, the more I just realized this was not feedback that I valued or took seriously. I didn't didn't value the feedback. I didn't even take it seriously because it was so ludicrous and hard to take seriously. And the thing that I wanted was the credential. And then I think it was just having confidence at a certain point to be like, I don't want that. If that is the way, if it's harder to become an MS as a woman than it is to become a brain surgeon, something is wrong with the organization. (laughs) It's not because there aren't really amazing qualified people out there. It's because something is, is amiss and this kind of feedback is not valuable to the industry as a whole and i guess i feel like it was valuable to a point and i think there's a lot of a lot of good that comes out of the skill set required to study and and it was actually the best thing like the process of studying for that exam was so hard and grueling in the best way it was like every minute was accounted for you were either on skype flashcard sessions or you were doing mock exams or you were walking through retail stores memorizing bottlings and there was muscles required the sort of mental muscles required to do that I think were very valuable as i then in, in life in general and so I'm grateful for that I think it's just the, the end of the road was, a it was sort of like the Wizard of Oz, where like you get to Oz, and then it's like a schmo behind a curtain. Yeah. And it's like, that's what I've just encountered. Okay, <laughs> the, the process, but the point isn't getting there. It's the road and the journey and the discoveries along the way
1: totally and i think what you mentioned just having people as a sounding board you know you talk about beyonce's comment and it just reminds me of why i started the podcast you hear from someone who's really made it and that you look up to say you know your goals might change and it resonates differently because it's like you've seen them go through their own path hearing your journey is inspiring to me and hopefully you know women listening but so much happened you know you didn't pass the exam you mentioned you got unexpectedly pregnant and you said you were scared right so you have this career career that you still want to build for yourself, but you don't really have any women who you look up to. This was really the motivation you needed to start Ramona. So what were the early stages of Ramona? So you're pregnant. Did you have a product idea? Did you start fundraising or what did those early days look like for you? The
0: early days. So this wedding was in Italy and I had lined up a meeting right away uh, in a vineyard because I had a different company, a much smaller company, which never had investors called Bellis prior to Ramona, and I had a meeting in a vineyard for that. And so I had all this thinking time, which was the other thing I definitely did not have leading up to this exam. And so then it's sort of like, exam doesn't get passed, wedding happens, now I'm pregnant, and I'm by myself in Italy with all this time to reflect and think and process and plan. And that was when I sort of realized it's like, this is now or never because the, like pregnancy or at least parenthood is, is the great unknown at least for me, it was It was sort of like, what is that going to be like? It's going to, it is going to be different. I don't know how, but it will be different. I have eight months to figure out what it is that I want to do. Maybe it is in the restaurants in some way, but I definitely needed to explore this idea. Um, and it came to me one night, it was like that first night in Italy, uh, Ramona, which was my little sister's nickname when she was uh, five. She, it was the name of her alter ego, actually. I love that. And it was this rebellious, just like this full of conviction, very loud, speak your mind, hilarious alter ego. And and I just loved the name, but it, it also felt like the right kind of thing. And I think it was, I don't think I realized this at the time, but I was sort of coming from a a group that is owned and run by single men at the time. And I was coming out of this organization that is very, and so I think I needed it to be loudly feminine. It is not for women. It is not, it is not marketed in any way particular, but I think I needed that strong feminine voice that wasn't afraid to speak her mind. And that was where, why I felt like the name resonated so much. And, and it was just fun to say, and I knew I wanted to love whatever this thing was because I wanted to, like saying it and seeing it in print. And then, so I sort of started thinking through, and I knew that I had connections in Italy to if I wanted to go the Italian route, there is a 3,000 year history and culture of organic viticulture. And I knew I wanted this to be organic from day one because it, it felt to me. I think there were so many moments, any kind of casual moment or any sort of daytime moment, like basically the beer or spritz moment did not offer a beverage that aligned with my value system. And I had become... Sort of adamant about just not I'm I'm very flexible on some things, but when it comes to what I consume, I'm I'm not that flexible. <laughs> I'm like happy to eat nothing than something that I that I really don't want. And just like living in the world, you understand how much power business has. Mm. And I felt like businesses were making the wrong decisions. Again and again and again for the bottom line and also these things tasted terrible so I didn't want to drink something that I didn't like the taste of and I didn't want to drink something that I felt was poisoning my body and and there was just a better way to do it and I felt like I was well positioned to give it a shot.
1: I believe around the same time you had the idea, or maybe it was right before you officially launched, you were thinking about getting into a business venture with a few other partners for a restaurant concept. There was an interesting clause that was in the legal documents that they sent you for the partnership. So I'd actually love to pivot slightly and talk about that experience because there's a lot of key learnings there that I think our listeners would find helpful in the event that they're ever in a similar situation.
0: Of course. All right. So uh, heading into a restaurant partnership and that with two other male partners and the clause it was like sort of buried in the contract and it said something like equity is contingent upon active partnership but the word active was never defined and so this was a sort of questionable contract and the other thing just in case anyone is starting a business or going into a partnership the it took weeks for this partnership to be drawn up and then it was emailed to me and i was told to get back to them right away and there was all this pressure like oh it's this 50 page document, but we need it now. Come on. Like time is, time is important, which is just a tactic for anyone who doesn't know to pressure you into signing things that are against your interest. Um, and my father is an attorney. And so I, I know to run anything by him before I sign it, especially if my life is on the line or intertwined with this contract. And he found about 10 things and he said, this is really bizarre, but you need to first, like, clarify these five points. And actually the first thing that I brought up, I thought was the most, I thought it was the gentle way of leading into these the other points. And so I bring up this, this this sort of active partnership clause. And I said to this, it was a chef, actually this particular guy was a chef and he said, uh, I said, look, hey, um, I, I just need to run a couple things by you. This this active partnership clause, active isn't defined. Like, what if I were to get pregnant, for example? Uh, and he responded immediately. He said, oh, you, you can't get pregnant for at least two years. We have to add that into the contract. And I remember being shocked. And it was such a weird thing to hear and say. And I remember being so stunned. I was like, maybe I misheard that. Maybe he didn't really say it. Maybe he didn't really mean it. He, um, yeah, so anyway, and then I, I immediately started to talk to a couple of lawyer friends afterwards, and they said, yeah, it's weird. It, it would not be legal if you were an employee, but if you sign on as a partner, then you are, are have your own, at your own free will, can, can sign away your rights. And it was just crazy to me that there was would be that penalty that was so. Um, anyway, it was a very. It, it ended up being a really great thing because I, it was made the decision very easy to walk away from this person who I never wanted, would have wanted to be partners with. And it turns out now, none of his current partners wanted to be partners with him either, and he's sort of in a predicament. But um, it's just interesting. It's like the, the what is it the true colors show in, in time and um and so and it was a gift because then i said no to that and then ended up Uh, meeting Dave Chang a few weeks later and then that is how um, Momofuku ended up happening and that was a a dream job in so many ways.
1: So this was earlier in your career. I thought it was right before Ramona, but I think it's so important to talk about because you mentioned something and I was shaking my head up and down because I think I want to just talk so much about this. If you get some type of legal agreement, partnership agreement, whatever it is, when they pressure you, that's definitely a tactic. Do not be pressured to ever give a quick response. So just take your time, read it, and you know, that's really the main thing that I wanted to talk about in this, your story, despite it also just being shocking that you would even be in that situation. But, you know, probably more of a motivation for you wanting to start your own business at some point in your life to just not even deal with this. And just
0: a good reminder that even in Manhattan, this incredibly progressive city in what year was that? and. 13, I think is when it was like December of 2013. And we're like that, that's basically yesterday. And I'm like this happens all the time. Wow. This happens all the time.
1: Mind-blowing. Well, hopefully with more women going up the ranks and in business, this will slowly change. I agree. Fully agreed. Yes. So going back to Ramona, you had some downtime in Italy. You mentioned you were thinking about all these ideas. And it's interesting because so many women on the podcast talk about how their business ideas came when they were pregnant. And I think having that eight-month timeline is just, it puts you in focus about what you want to do. It's actually fascinating. I would say now I've done, you know, around 50 interviews, 60% of the women started their businesses while they're pregnant. So it's fascinating to even hear that was a huge inspiration for you. And you wonder why, but it's definitely interesting. Yeah, because the workplace
0: likes to pretend that it's an equal space, but it it is not at the end of the day. And so I think that's where we as, as women leaders have the opportunity to, to course correct and to make better decisions and to and to make a more Friendly environment to create a support system and a network in which women are able to contribute in all of these ways that we that we want to, without having to uh, start our. own. I mean, I think in, in some ways that the best thing possible is starting our own business. But um, I, I do think that's fascinating. It's that a fascinating statistic. And it makes sense to me, even though I'm also floored by it. That's amazing.
1: (laughs) And so looking at your life, you know, you come up with this idea and concept. Did you initially begin fundraising or did you launch a few products before you brought in investors? I'd kind of love to hear about your journey there. Yes, so
0: I did all of the prototypes and testing and legal fees, all of that I did on my own before raising any capital from outside investors. Um, and the moment that I needed to was after uh, after we had our first can, our, our canning run and our first test batch, because you can't just can one little sample. It's like you are canning tens of thousands of cans and that is expensive.
1: Yes. And you're spending so much money on this sample mm-hmm. and you're hoping that it comes out exactly the way you want exactly. it to. Exactly.
0: like And I just have the sense that it would like this was the right thing and the world was missing a thing for People with my approach to to beverages and to value systems, but uh, yeah, that was that was definitely intense because I, I at that point I needed capital and I needed it so that I could pay for this thing that I, I thought could take off and it, it worked. There were some things that worked in my favor. Um, on, like the day of our canning run was the day that I learned that I had been put on the cover of Wine Enthusiast holding two pretend cans of Ramona it was like red bull cans with Ramona wrapping it I yet. Um, and that image ended up making the cover and so like there were some good PR bumps that were helpful in telling the story um, but I think it, it's never easy especially getting that very first person to believe in you and the first person who who invested in Ramona was actually a somebody I had met through restaurants and through Mobofugu. He uh, was a big fan of the restaurants and loved wine. And we would get to talk wine all the time. And he was just a a wonderful human who wants other people to succeed. And I think it's just so nice when you find somebody like that in the world. And I just wanted to, um, it's like, I think the way that we've raised capital. And now at this point, we've raised three rounds. And I take every dollar very personally. This is somebody else's dollar that they have invested in my decision-making and it is meaningful. I do not want to let these people that I care
1: about down. Any advice that you have for any woman who's going through that process themselves and is pitching to investors and looking to fundraise any advice as someone who's now gone down three different rounds for their own business? Yes. Okay. So I would say,
0: I mean, the First check is always the hardest in, in any round. And then once, once you have a couple of people who have committed to the round, it's wild how much easier it is. Um, so that is just a point one. Um, know your numbers. And if you are not, a, you are a finance person, but for anyone who might not be, find a finance person and make sure that your numbers tell the right story and that you're honest about them. Um, I think that's really helpful and really important pivot, execute, execute, execute when you when you value that. I think that that is something that every investor that I've ever met values execution and also self-awareness. So I think when you know your strengths and you lean into that versus if you know areas where you're not as strong and you hire against that or you hire for that, that is important. And investors want to see that you know your strengths, but also that you know, your areas of limitation um yeah i think like really the it's and i want to say i mean i i also think storytelling is part of it the story has to be true but life and connection and emotional connection is a result of stories and the stories that we tell and so being able to communicate the why of your product the why it exists the why now the why this is the product or this is the company that that these people want to invest in is very important.
1: I think that's really key. We actually just had Minnie Ingersoll on our podcast. She's a venture capitalist. It was about two episodes ago. And she mentioned that exact same thing in terms of really understanding your why and being able to authentically Mm -hmm. describe it and storytell your business. And it really being true to who you are as a person. So I'm glad you brought that up and that resonates with your experience as well. So one thing I also want to make sure we touch upon is all about the hardships of entrepreneurship, right? I'm sure on the face of it, Ramona has received so much success in terms of the critics, consumers, celebrities. Can you share any tough moments or any big mistakes that you've personally made in the business? Yes,
0: of course. Um, All right. So there was a, after our third round, which was back in
1: 2018,
0: we met a consultant and the consultant was a friend of one of our, our new investors who I have deep admiration for. And this person came from the wine industry and and he was, and I, I should have, it's just a good reminder to never, for me, the lesson and I'll sort of I'll lead with the, the end, but basically it was a somebody who, felt very different, who had a very different way of valuing, who placed value on different things. And he was very commodity sort of widget oriented. And he was very much like this. I've been doing this a long time. This is how we do it. This is how the wine industry works. You have to make all these changes. You have to, and he, and he's, we, we worked with him for about six weeks, like a month and a half. He was egregiously expensive to the point where I was like, I don't think like what you're promising. First of all, what he was promising sounded too good to be true. And so a lot of uh, that old adage, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. I, he was asking for such an egregious compensation that I ended up making him meet with our hardest, our toughest, our most regimented investor who's just great to have on your side. And I said, can you meet me with this guy? Like, Here's what he's saying he'll do and here's what he's asking for. And and it was very clear that he, he was sort of not the right fit. But in that process, I did make some decisions that he suggested. And that that was very, it was just the wrong value system. And it, it ended up putting us on this path that was wrong. It just didn't feel authentic. The values were not in place. He, we ended up sort of shifting to a couple of really gigantic distributors. The ones that investors or like investors who don't know the space get really excited about Southern and RNDC, and really, it's funny because in a pandemic, those are the ones that they do not take care of their teams. They mm-hmm. furloughed almost everyone right off the bat. And then they sort of cry poor about it, like, oh, feel bad for us because we, we have to let our team go. And so we just can't even think about your product. Um, and it it's just is interesting because I think that thinking along the way of like, this is the way that it, things are done. Should have been the red flag immediately, but I let it play out for about six weeks and and it took months to recover from that uh, because you can do a lot of damage in a short amount of time.
1: We hear that a lot in terms of just really listening to your gut. And it sounds so simple, but Mm -hmm. I've heard it so much from women like yourselves who just say, if you just can silence yourself and listen to your gut, you know, that's where the best decisions. And I think it really boils down to how you feel as a leader with whatever decision you're making, because Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, it's your company and you're the one that has to get up, feeling excited and inspired Mm -hmm. for your Mm -hmm. own team and ultimately customers. So I think that's really helpful to hear. You know, one thing I also want to touch upon is as someone who was initially scared of being pregnant and also running a business fast forward to today, you have two adorable kids, you have a thriving business. So as someone I'm looking at you, who's made it right. Who's been able to juggle both worlds. I'd love to be at that point one day as well, but what advice do you have for any woman who's looking to kind of be in a position that you are in their career and family?
0: course, and I think everyone will have their own recipe, but what has worked for me, and there are some days where it's more business, and there are some days where someone has an ear infection, or there's uh, schools closed for snow day, or you whatever the thing is. So I think for me, and I'm not saying that this is the right answer, but it, it has worked for me. Is I I'm always happy to sacrifice sleep. I know that's not the right thing to say. I know our bodies need sleep, and I do always catch up. But I feel like it's it's the things that need to happen. They just have to happen. So you just have to figure out how to how to do it. And I think um, really prioritizing. And gating time is something that I've gotten so much better at. Where it's like, if I have 15 minutes, I can get a good workout in. It's not the best workout, but I can get in something. And that is going to give me peace the rest of the day. So I, I really do. I've noticed that when I start my day with some kind of movement, um, which is what I've been doing actually every day of 2021 for the most part, I've been able to work out some time and it makes such a difference. And then I think, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's possible. To, sometimes you just sort of, for me, I just need to put my blinders on, and it's like, all right, this is this is the thing that just needs to happen, and I can look at nothing else. And you, know, emails on silence, and no distractions until this thing is is done. Um, but many of the most productive people I know are moms. So actually, our director of finance is a single mom in Texas, and she is. Freaking amazing. She's dealing with these crazy power outages. For a while she had COVID and then her son got COVID. And, and she just is this woman who brings such work ethic. And I think so, I guess that's another thing is just surround yourself by people who who have the same work ethic as as you do or as, as you want to have in your in your life, in the culture of your life. Um, because I do think there is a sort of culture of our lives and and that is uh, the, our our CMO is a mother of two, and she. And I think for me, what what has been unsuccessful, or the people who have been part of our team that have not been the right fit, are the, the people who really gate their time, and they're like, "I'm sorry, it's six. I'm I'm off email." And it's like that that doesn't actually. I didn't grow up that way. That's not how restaurants work. You're actually on at every other time when everyone else is off. And so I think that was just helpful. I didn't have this expectation that I deserve weekends off or that I wanted weekends off. I want to be able to spend time with my children on weekends and in the evenings and in the mornings. But I also, there is time to do both. I think it's helpful if for me, what has been helpful is not having this rigid expectation that from this time to this time is exclusively one thing or another. It's more this than that, but but then there are interruptions that happen on, on both sides and you can sort of, as long as you have your goals set of... The other thing I do is I write a letter to myself every December for the following January. So like December, 2020, I write a letter to myself of, from January 20, 2022 and it's like all of the things, basically it's a little silly, but I congratulate myself on all the things that I did that year or that I want to be able to say when I make it to the, the next year. And I find it really helpful. It's just like, it's my North Star. It's like, yes, you want a peaceful, nurturing home. You want a thriving family. You want your business rocking, you, you, all of these things. And I think there's a statistic where things are 46% more likely to happen if you write them down. And so I like writing things
1: down. I definitely believe that. I'm a huge proponent of being really clear and writing down your goals. But I love, love, love the fact that you are writing a letter to yourself for the upcoming year and congratulating yourself with everything that you've done. That is just so brilliant. Because then it's
0: like the emotion tied to it too. Like you nailed it. You dreamed this and you did it.
1: Yes, really feeling it and the emotion around it is, I think, probably the most important part of it. I can't wait to try this myself. So I want to close on one question that we love to ask all of our guests. Wealth means so much more than money and everybody has their own definition of wealth. At this point in your life, what does wealth mean to you?
0: I love this question. All right, so I think it means a couple things. I think in one way, I mean, having worked in places where you need to sort of, you're tied to a schedule and that's unyielding. I think it's it's, I feel very, very lucky and very fortunate that I am in control of that. I, I think in a weird way, the pandemic maybe has been beneficial where it's the the office culture is not as rigid as it maybe once was. And hopefully that will, that will remain. The other thing that I think for me, wealth is being in a position to make decisions that I believe are making a difference for better. Mm. Because when you're working for someone else maybe they're making decisions that align with your values but but maybe they're not and i've worked in both jobs both kinds of jobs and actually every job that i've worked in i've wanted to i have disagreed with something or else i would have stayed and so i think for me it's it's nice like i love that we can make a commitment to only organic farming. We're looking for a certification or working on a certification where uh, it's called the 3E certification. It's in Italy and basically it guarantees that all of the grapes are not only farmed sustainably, but that all of the people involved are paid fairly for their work. So it's like, I, and I can make that decision and decide to prioritize that. Um, and I think that's there's so much value in that. There's an article I was reading last night the wall street journal magazine and it's bill gates is on the cover and he's talking about climate as the next basically it's his his how it's a profile of his book and how he has a game plan for how we all have to act in order to not um, ruin our planet by 2050 and it's it's useful to be able to read that and then know that small decisions i make can, can can be the right decision versus the wrong one and i think there's a lot of wealth in that decision making
1: sure and it's so beautiful to be in a position to actually make an impact so i appreciate you jordan for spending time with us today and going through your incredible windy journey it was such an honor to have you join us
0: likewise thank you so much for having me on this podcast and for your incredibly thoughtful questions and for the stories that you are bringing and telling and your own stories as well thank you so much
1: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny, and it's never too late to start your own empire.